1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As those who... As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. It's, it's been a week. Uh, we're here to learn from God's word, and so uh, let's bow our heads together uh, and pray. Ask God to bless our time. Um, Father, I thank you so much for um, this church family. Thank you for your word, uh, the gift of the church, uh, what you've called us to, the wisdom that you give us in the scriptures uh, about uh, uh, church membership and church leaders and how we're to relate to one another uh, in the church. And um, God, as Paul said to Timothy, uh, our, our desire um, is that through this book that we would know um, how to live with one another, how to behave as a household of God, as the church of the living God as a, a foundation, as, as, as a fortress for your truth. Uh, so would you, Lord, just uh, bless our walking through this text? Would you make your word come alive to us? Would you help us uh, maybe with things that are new that we're seeing in the text to, be, uh, to learn more with things that are challenging, that you would just uh, humble us and maybe change us? And more than anything, God, we just pray that our time together would be not only beneficial for our lives, but bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, that's where we're going to be walking through. If you didn't pick up on that already from the scripture reading, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 25. Uh, a lot of stuff for us to work through, uh, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run through it, all right? Uh, but first... Uh, let me tell you a quick story. About 18 years ago, uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, kind of hit the southeastern U.S., uh, one of the worst hurricanes in American history. You guys all remember that? Like 2005, 2006. Uh, a few months after that, I traveled uh, with a short-term mission stream, uh, missions team to, uh, to uh, New Orleans, in Louisiana uh, to do some uh, construction and some ministry relief work over there. Um, and as we landed, man, the, the place, uh, it was awful. It, 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 just, it just smelled of, of mold. The place was absolutely decimated. Buildings were flattened. Uh, they, they say it's the costliest disaster to this day uh, in U.S. history, like over $120 billion in damages. Uh, uh, 1,300 people passed away. Uh, really sad, really tragic just to see what everything looked like. And uh, there was this one neighborhood uh, that we visited where there was like all these buildings that were either toppled over, if not flattened completely. And there was this one church that had this chapel that was still standing. This chapel that was standing. And, and we were so curious. We're like, hey, tell us about that chapel. Like, how, 
How did, how did that happen? And it turns out that one of the elders uh, at that church, this retired guy uh, who was a builder, uh, he took it upon himself to oversee the building of this chapel. And it was like his pet project. He gave it so much care and love and attention. Uh, they told us that because this guy uh, was so old school, he made sure that he built it to meet all the county and state codes for hurricanes, uh, which I found kind of unsettling because it's like, why is that an old school thing, right? Shouldn't that be like an everything school thing? But uh, uh, so that means that if the code uh, called for like these 12-inch beams, he put 12-inch beams there. Uh, if, it, if it called for a metal brace to attach to the beams, he'd put in a metal brace. If there was a, a ceiling joist, he'd put that in. And it was entirely built according to all the safety hurricane codes, and that helped the chapel withstand the brunt force of the hurricane. The scriptures that have been preserved by God throughout history, the Bible is the sort of code or blueprint for how we should build the church for how we should live our Christian lives. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul gives specific instructions to Pastor Timothy on how the church should operate, how they should act toward one another. And the topic given unto us in today's text is the topic of leadership. You may have picked up on the fact that this topic of leadership is one of the mega themes throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Like we've already seen uh, some talk about what false leadership looks like, what false teaching and false leadership looks like. We've already seen uh, the qualifications and the characters of good leaders, godly leaders in chapter 3. Uh, and here... In chapter 5, it gets a little bit more practical about, about leadership. It gets a little bit more technical about what this looks like, healthy leadership, biblical leadership, what that looks like inside the church, what it looks like on the ground, what it looks like when you're actually in the trenches doing ministry. And so the text specifically speaks into uh, the leadership office of elder, uh, which is synonymous with pastor uh, or bishop, but we can extend the principles we're going to see to really any leadership position in the church. Now, we've said this before uh, in chapter three, but it's, but it's been a minute uh, since before Advent season, so uh, let me review really quick why this topic of leadership should matter to us, other than the very plain fact that it's in the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, which are all written and preserved and useful for, for our, uh, to teach us. Uh, in addition to that, um, some of you here uh, in this room uh, will be called to leadership. I mentioned that this text applies specifically. It speaks specifically to the office of elder. Uh, but by, by, by way of um, uh, analogy, you can also uh, uh, compare it to or pick up some principles for uh, just any role of Christian ministry leadership. And some of you um, might be aspiring to be leaders one day. Some of you will be leaders. But in addition to that, if you're just a Christian in a church, you need to know what biblical church leadership looks like. You need to know what the Bible has to say about it. You need to know what kind of person you need to be if you are called to that, how we're to relate to our leaders, how we're to pray for them, how we're to select them, and, and so on and so on. And so, and so here's the main idea for this text. It's that Christ's church should have Christ-like leaders who labor faithfully, and the Spirit of God helps us to nurture and receive them. Christ's church should have Christ-like leaders who labor hard, labor, labor faithfully, and the Spirit of God helps us to nurture and receive them. So let's start walking through the text. Here's point number one. All right, like I said, we're going through this fast, so buckle up, right? Point number one, 
Honor the church leaders who labor for you. Honor the church leaders who labor for you. You'll, uh, you'll notice that this, this whole section that we're in the middle of, like chapter five and on early in chapter six, this entire section is about this topic of honor. Last week, we looked at honoring one another as a church family. We also talked about honoring widows uh, in the church family. Next week, we'll, we'll talk about uh, slaves honoring their masters. That'll be a fun one, right? Should be interesting uh, to unpack that. Uh, today, though, we're talking about honoring elders in the church. Verse 17, the beginning of verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Pretty straightforward, right? It says here, Christians should have a high regard for faithful leaders. That's what the plain reading of the text means. Honor should be given where honor is due. And this is not an, un an uncommon biblical command. All right, uh, uh, there, there, there's dozens of places that ha talk about um, uh, this, the, the relationship between uh, church members and their leaders. For example, in Hebrews 13, verses 17 and 18, here's what it says. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Really quick there, some people, some people read the, uh, uh, that first part, obey your leaders and submit to them, and they're like, that sounds nice, right? Maybe, maybe I could be a leader one day, right? Uh, but you read the rest of that, for they, those leaders, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account who will one day have to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for how they've watched over, cared for, protected, guided, shepherded your souls. That's, that's terrifying. That's why it makes my voice crack, right? <laughs> yeah, thanks for noticing that. Um, he continues and he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And he says, pray for us, pray for us leaders, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. The author of Hebrews is saying this. He's saying that as a Christian, you have an authority over you in the local church, all right? You have an authority over you in the local church. You have elders and leaders who help govern the church, who help teach sound doctrine. They set the direction. They set the pace for the church. They care for, they protect, they shepherd your souls. They are godly leaders. Any godly leader is a, is a gift, is God's provision, God's gift to the church, and then he says, let them do this with joy and no groaning. In other words, don't run them to the ground. Don't run them to the ground. Like, what advantage of you, he says, is there, what advantage is there to you if the leaders in the church are praying like, like, like God, I, I'm just tired of these people, right? I'm tired of these difficult people. Give me the grace to love them well. Give me grace to love them well, or, or maybe just send them all to that other church, right? The ones that, that, that are still hard to love well. He, he says, Paul says, look, no, it's of no advantage to you. It's of no advantage to you to try and beat up your spiritual leaders, to make their job hard for you. And so pray for them. Pray that they would lead, that they would shepherd, shepherd with honor. Honorably, he says right there in, in uh, Hebrews 13. And there's that word again, honor. That brings us back to our text, First Timothy chapter 5. Now, Paul doesn't leave us with a vague principle, a vague directive to honor our elders. No, he tells us the underlying why uh, we should honor our elders, along with a couple specific hows. And so let's look at that first. Why should we honor our elders? Look at the beginning of verse 17 of 1 Timothy 5 again. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 
And so we, we, we honor our elders, we honor pastor elders because it says they rule well. They are those who rule well. You see, honor isn't just given like just because. We don't give honor just because. John Maxwell, uh, sort of Christian leadership guy, he, he talks about the difference between what he calls uh, positional leadership and permission leadership. And he says that positional leadership means that you're a leader simply because of your title. Simply because of your position, there's no ability or effort required, right? And you're just kind of given that position of leadership uh, uh, or you have that, that, that leadership role simply because of a position. Uh, permission leadership, on the other hand, is when you have a leader who's a great example to others. They're a great example of hard work, a great example of faithfulness. Uh, they're the kind of person who's worthy of emulating, uh, and people trust you and follow you because they want to. Uh, you, you, they give you permission to lead them well. And so that's permissional, uh, permission leadership. And he talks about, Maxwell talks about other levels to attain, but my point for you is to understand that there's a difference between uh, positional leadership, which is not earned, and permission leadership in other levels, which are earned. And what Paul calls uh, the type of leader who receives double honor, the type of elder who should receive double honor, double honor is, is, is the one who, ha- who is, you are willing to give permission to lead you well. What Paul calls double honor is not automatic honor, but earned honor for those who, he says, rule well. Now, really quick, I don't want you to get caught up on that word rule, all right? I think, I think our, our, our modern 21st century uh, selves get caught up on that word rule because we live in an anti-rule time. We live in an anti-rule society. That's why when you go to like one of those uh, bait-and-switch uh, neighborhood parties where your neighborhood or where your neighbor invites you over for some, some wine and hors d'oeuvres, uh, they get everyone together and they pull out this whiteboard and they ask, they ask the same question. They always start with the same question. How would you like to be your own boss? Right? And you're like, oh, man, it's one of these, right? How would you like to be your own boss? How would you like to earn $13,000 a month from the comfort of your living room? Uh, They always lead with the be your own boss question because they know that our society is an anti-rule society. That's always the first pitch. But that word rule here in the text really just means to, to, to manage, to lead, to order to take responsibility for those uh, that you lead under your care. The big idea is that it takes work and grit to lead people towards change. It's not ruling out of like a dictatorship, but with, with dignity and with understanding your responsibility to those that you lead. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, uh, at the, end, the rest of verse 17, um, actually, I'll start again from the beginning. It says, let the le- elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then it says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word labor, the Greek word uh, kapiao, uh, literally means to toil. To, to work hard, uh, it gives you the sense of working up uh, a sweat. 
As one commentator notes, he says, with this verb, to labor, uh, he, Paul, is self-consciously designating the work of these elders as a vigorous and as a laborious work. The idea here is that faithful church leadership is often tiring. It's hard work. It's sometimes wearisome work. At times, it can be physically uh, exhausting, emotionally exhausting, spiritually exhausting. Man, this has been especially true. If, if you read what all the, 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 the church leader uh, coaches and, 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 and people are saying in denominations, they're saying this has been especially true in the last few years. I mean, look with all the challenges that the church has, has faced in the year of our Lord 2020, right? Like with, with COVID uh, and the lockdowns and all the political wars that were going on. Uh, you got church people that began losing interest in the physical gathering uh, of the church on the other side of that. They say that currently there's 26 pastors, 26% of all pastors have personally struggled with mental health illness in the last few years. And for pastors under the age of 45, which would include me, that number almost doubles. Tim Keller, a uh, retired uh, Presbyterian minister uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, he was recently interviewed on what it's like being a retired pastor who is currently battling stage four pancreatic cancer. I mean, the guy's written books on life and death and suffering all before he started, was diagnosed with cancer. And so they're asking him like, hey, like, you know, what does your ministry look like now as somebody with stage four pancreatic cancer? And in this interview I was listening to, he, he, he goes, you know, it's really hard. I was just talking to my wife, Kathy, about this the other day, and I was just telling her, you know, um, like stage four pancreatic cancer is like one of the most difficult things that I've ever had to work through and suffer through. But hey, at least I'm not a pastor anymore in today's cultural climate. Because ministry can be costly. And honor goes to those who labor in leading and do their jobs well. Laziness has no place in ministry. Laziness in ministry is for losers and deserves no honor. Double honor, Paul says, is for those who work and who labor diligently. Now, how then should we honor them? He mentions at least two ways in this text. The first one that he mentions is compensation. This is financial compensation. Look at verse 18. He quotes here in verse 18, uh, Deuteronomy 4 and Luke chapter 10, when he says, for the scriptures say, or the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. By the way, it's fascinating that he's quoting, Paul is quoting both the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and the words of Jesus in Luke 10 and calling both of those scriptures. Right? It kind of kind of shows us how all the scriptures sort of fit together in, in the canon of scriptures that we have in our Old and New Testament. But what he says here, when he says, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the labor deserves his wages, in other words, he's saying you should, you should pay your leaders. You should pay your leaders, uh, especially the ones who are given to teaching and preaching. He compares elders, uh, teaching elders, to an ox, which I admit is not super flattering. 
Um, he could have quoted something else from the Old Testament about the noble steed or the high-flying eagle, right? But instead, we get ox. Um, but I think this is actually a great word picture that Paul chose. Because if you think about the ox, the ox sort of, sort of pulls the plow for the harvest. And elsewhere in Scripture, like including the words of Jesus, Jesus compares the ministry of disciple-making and church planning to a harvest, the idea is that if God cares about the harvest and the crops to the point where he makes sure that the animals he's created, like the ox, can handle the load so that the crop can truly flourish, how much more does he care about the oxes who labor in the church in vocational ministry? See, in verses 17 uh, through, through 18 here, it tells us that, that some pastors... Not all of them, but some pastors, some elders, they should be paid for the church, by the church, especially those who are ministers of the word. One of the primary roles of elders is to be able to teach and to teach well, to teach in a way that is faithful to the Bible, not teaching man's opinions, uh, not teaching hot tips for Christian living, but just trusting that God who is sovereign was wise in the way that he put the scriptures together. And so we go through books of the Bible the way that we do. We trust that God is more wise in how he put the scriptures together than what we would try to do. And it takes time to study the Bible in that way. It takes, it takes time to, to dig in deep and, and to understand it academically and theologically and doctrinally and to understand it, to have a good grasp of that and to be able to apply it practically to uh, our, our lives today, Right? I mean, my, my Bible study uh, during the week, uh, just so you know, isn't going to like awesomesermons.com and downloading something, right? Pay $5 a month and then download these things. Like, no, like there's, there's a lot of great uh, preachers out there and videos and stuff like that that you can watch and like learn from that have been a benefit to me. But hey, look, like all of those guys out there, um, they're studying the word and they're applying it to the congregations in front of them who have their own issues their own sin struggles, their own cultural contexts, uh, their own sort of spiritual backgrounds, they're not thinking about this congregation. And I'm not thinking about another congregation. I'm not thinking about uh, all, all of our podcast subscribers and people who watch our videos on, on Vimeo or on Facebook. No, when I'm putting a sermon together, I'm thinking about you guys. Because I know you, I've talked to you. I know what the common strength struggles are. I know what the, the faith, doubts, and skepticisms are. And it takes time. It takes a lot of hard work to dig in, understand, and then apply it to our context. That's why he says the laborer deserves his wages. And that church members should support that because ultimately they'll benefit from that. Because the word of God is the bread of life. There's another way that we're to honor elders, and that's through appreciation. Appreciation, this is valuing, respecting, uh, showing gratitude, love, and encouragement. This is what he means by showing uh, double honor uh, to those who rule well. Uh, elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Paul's saying, hey, look, there are some guys, these, these leaders among you 
who labor. They labor among you. They're not laboring you from some internet stream. They're not laboring and, and among you through uh, some like virtual campus. No, these guys are involved in your lives. They're among you. You know them. They know you. And they've been placed over you in a position of leadership to admonish you and to so esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He says, give them the honor due to them. Distribute it freely and joyfully and frequently. Listen, people, people are made to need each other. We need one another. We're built up by each other. And this includes the church. This includes church leadership. Pastors are people too, in case you didn't know. Ministry leaders are people too. And as people, we need the same things that everyone else does. We need encouragement and affirmation, thankfulness and honor and love and appreciation, people to suffer alongside us, people to give us a hug when we need it, like everyone else. And there's no shame in that, all right? There's no shame in a leader or a pastor needing a little love sometime. Look, Paul was a tough dude. The Apostle Paul was a, a tough dude. He was a faithful pastor, and he was constantly with people. And when he wasn't with people, he talks about them in his letters, and he says, I long to be with you guys. I can't wait to be with you because of the encouragement that I received from you. I just can't wait. You look at the stuff that he had to deal with, being shipwrecked and, and beaten and imprisoned and, and the heartache that overcame him when he talks about just, just thinking about the churches and the Christians under his care, who, who he's wondering, have they swerved away from the gospel? Man, I know that feeling and the heartache that that causes. And he talks about this, and he, man, he needed friendship in that. He needed encouragement. He needed affirmation. You need to know that the leaders of this church, most of them are volunteers. Almost all of them are volunteers. The leaders of the church, they work, many of them work hard to care for you and to love for you. Not because they feel like they have to, but out of joy, it's like because they get to. They get to serve Jesus in this way. They serve you. They make sure that you're growing in the gospel. And so, man, the point of application from this text for us is, is would you honor those leaders? Show appreciation for those, them, especially those who are directly involved in your care. This would include your, your home group leaders if you're in a home group, your ministry leaders uh, if you serve on a, on a serve team or a few different serve teams. Uh, some of these... Some of these, these most, most of our volunteers, I mean, they, they serve in positions that are behind the scenes, and they never get acknowledged. And honor needs to go to them. You can honor them with your words. This means words, like notes, text messages, phone calls of encouragement, just expressing gratitude. Hey, can I tell you, here's how you blessed me this last week. Hey, can you tell me, this, this, this helped me when you challenged me to be faithful to this. Uh, God used that hard word from you to, to make me holy. He used that encouraging word from you to bring joy in my suffering. Hey, I, I, you, you really shed light on that text through the way that you led us through that, that passage of Scripture at group the other night. It's not just honoring with your words, but it also could look like honoring with, with, your, with your actions. This means uh, just 
being respectful when you speak to them, right? Not gossiping about them. It means that if you serve in a ministry role, uh, showing up for that role when you're supposed to. And if you can't, finding someone to replace you so that somebody else, so that the leader of that team doesn't end up uh, uh, taking on that responsibility uh, because of your ineptitude. It means taking responsibility for your own responsibilities and honoring our leaders and theirs. Most of us are connected to a number of leaders in our church. Man, I'm going to humbly ask you to honor them. Honor them. Honor our volunteers. Honor the leaders who labor for you. Point number two. We're also discipline those leaders who mislead you sinfully. Discipline those leaders who mislead you. Some leaders will mislead the church because of their false teaching. Some leaders and elders will mislead the church because of their sinful living. Now, being a qualified elder doesn't mean that, 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 that our elders and our leaders are expected to be sinless. But what it does mean is that elders and leaders should be exemplary in character. And that they should, leaders should be those who lead first in repentance. When they've blown it, when they've sinned, when they've been met with their own imperfection, hey, they're willing to say like, hey, I own that. That's on me. That's my fault, right? They're not trying to save face. They're not trying to cover it up. They're trying to not like, try not to flex and look like they're something that they're not. But they're own, they own their sin. And for those moments when an elder is in a pattern of unrepentant sin, the Spirit has given us wisdom on how a church should deal with that appropriately. Now listen, God calls all Christians to fight for uh, personal and corporate holiness. Personal meaning our own, our own holiness and corporate holiness, meaning uh, uh, corporate, like corporal body, uh, when we're together as a church body, fighting for our holiness together. And all Christians are called to participate in that fight for holiness. But you need to know how this works for the church as a whole, but especially for our leaders. And so look at verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. For as those who persist in sin rebuke, or as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Kind of gnarly, right? But look, he gives us some practical principles to carry out here. Just put, put plainly, he says, first, reject shallow accusations. Reject shallow accusations. Don't accept a charge against an elder unless there's some data to back that up. Don't accept a charge against an elder unless it's coming from a number of different people. Don't entertain accusations unless uh, multiple people are corroborating. Now, it's worth noting that this is a general principle that should be followed, all right? This is a general principle, but so this doesn't mean that we get to be nitpicky about this when there's a serious accusation or with that it holds serious weight, or possible like illegal action. Like we don't get to say like, ah, oh, serious abuse, illegal activity. Well, you know, let's dismiss it and ignore it because uh, uh, like the, 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 we, we don't know if anybody else saw this, right? Uh, we don't know if anyone else has said anything yet. When you're too willing, when you're too willing to turn a blind eye to evil, especially evil, that's done against the most vulnerable. That is nothing short of wicked. 
all right? And so don't see this as, as this tea strainer sort of rule that allows those in power to be nitpicky with the process. This is just a general principle that speaks into the importance of um, making sure that, that there are not shallow accusations with the, that are not backed up by a number of witnesses that get received. Now, why is um, this important? Um, we need to understand first that every situation, every situation that involves confronting someone in a sin, and if it's a leadership position, um, um, sometimes they might be a grave sin. God, God willing, that would never happen in this church. But every situation is going to require wisdom and care and safety for all the different people involved, uh, both the accused and the accusers. And there may be some exceptions, but the regular norm is to not receive shallow or frivolous accusations without doing like some level of investigation. You need to vet it. You need to look into it. And if there's no, it turns out that there's no legitimacy, don't entertain it. Now, you'll notice that Paul is not advocating anything different than what's already outlined by Jesus in Matthew 18 for, for how, uh, how we should address sin in, in any brother or sister. So he's not, he's not giving us anything different than what is already true about how we uh, confront each other in sin. What he is making a point in in 1 Timothy is that elders should be protected specifically from accusations that are cursory and that are frivolous, shallow, and hold no real weight. Because that does often happen. That does often happen. It's natural to understand that ministry leaders are more vulnerable to gossip and slander and attacks and false charges. John Calvin says, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. They may perform their duties correctly and conscientiously, yet they never avoid a thousand criticisms. Even the most faithful ministers among us are not immune to accusations. They're not immune to slander, not immune to gossip and to people's hurt feelings. It's the nature of the job. It's the nature of being in a position of leadership. And anybody who has served in any type of leadership position uh, uh, for a while like, knows this. They've seen this. The kind of criticism that leaders get. I don't like what you said. I don't, I don't like what you did. I don't, I don't, I don't like that call that, that you made for that, that team. I don't like the call that you made for this church. That's not how about this other church that I was at. Um, that's not how they did things. That's not how the bigger church down the road does things. Or maybe it's like, hey, I, I, feel, I, feel, I feel hurt by you, leader. I feel hurt by you. I feel undervalued. I told you about my idea, which was like my thing, and, and, and you didn't get excited about my thing. We used to be close, but then the church grew, and, and, and now you don't have time for me. And because of this, like, I'm going to be mad. I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to blow things up, right? This is something that could, like, build over time. And often it's unmet expectations that leads to people making assumptions, which leads to then starting to see things that aren't really there which leads to bitterness, it leads to animosity, it leads to division, 
And look, churches are not immune to these things. Churches are not, churches are not immune to uh, division and, and bitterness and slander and gossip. You know why? Because churches have people in them. Churches are filled with people, no matter how small or, or how big. And people are broken. People have baggage. People sin. I love that Depeche Mode song, that people are people, so why should it be that, that you and I should get along so awfully? You guys know that one? I love that song because it's got like a great vibe to it. Um, uh, but also I was like, oh, I know the answer to that question, right? I know why we get along so awfully because people sin, All right, People are broken. And Paul says we're to ex- expect this to happen. He says accusations are going to come. But the shallow, the baseless ones, the ones that where no matter how, how much you look into it and, and investigate, which we should do, right? But the ones where it seems that there's no weight to them, no, no reality to them, don't entertain them, Paul says. Again, this doesn't mean that we ignore very real issues. It doesn't mean we, we ignore significant issues and significant accusations and big issues. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But it does mean that those that are, are shallow, that end up being shallow, should have no more uh, time given to them. The next thing he says uh, so uh, about this is not just to reject shallow accusations, but to investigate and to address those confirmed accusations. You see, equally important to dismissing shallow accusations is is being able to address and how we should address those confirmed accusations. Verse 20 says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If you remember, the problem among leadership in this church uh, in Ephesus is that there were a group of teachers, a group of leaders, uh, they were elders and pastors that were teaching false doctrine. And in many cases, that false doctrine led to, to immorality. It led to sinful behavior. We actually read about this in Paul's next letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, when Paul says, avoid irreverent babble. Or avoid empty words, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, really quick here, gangrene is a blood infection that spreads. And not only does it spread rapidly, but because it's like spread rapidly throughout the body because it's in the bloodstream, but it also happens to smell like horrible. I mean, you just listen to the word gangrene. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like it smells nice, right? It's foul. Uh, you got these pus-filled pus words that keep growing in, si- in size so that, so that medically speaking, it becomes like one of the, the most difficult uh, problems to be able to handle. And we see here that God's view of irreverent babble and empty squabbles is that they spread gangrene. In other words, they smell bad, they spread quickly, and the bigger it gets, the harder it is to deal with, and a whole congregation can be infected by it. So he says their talk will spread like gangrene. And among them, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He names two guys, calls them out on the carpet. And he says, these guys have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. 
Man, what a bummer legacy. What a sad legacy. What a tragic legacy for Hymenaeus and Philetus. They're remembered for their babble. They're remembered for their empty words, their false teaching, their ungodliness, it says, and for the way that they disrupted the faith of some people in the church. Their words cause problems, and not just their words, but their actions, their ungodliness cause problems. You don't want that to be your legacy. You see, leaders in sin cannot and should not continue in sin, and so they need to be confronted. That sin needs to be corrected. And that process should be orderly so that it doesn't cause like undue chaos, unnecessary chaos, but, but it should happen. There should still be a process for this. The process isn't like, hey, we're the guys in charge. You don't get to bring up the accusations. No, the process is like, hey, if it seems like there might be some weight to this, let's spend some time on that. Let's spend some time on that. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, that's why the first step in the process is you confront them privately. Be willing to have a hard conversation uh, uh, if, if you can, because this, if sin needs to get dealt with, bring it to them. And the goal is not restitution. The goal isn't for them to, to get isn't to get payback. No, the goal is restoration. He says, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's the goal. And look, if when you approach him, if that doesn't happen, then you bring in others with you. Let's get some more witnesses. That's what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18. This is what Paul's saying to do here in 1 Timothy 5. Bring in others. Say to this person, hey, look, there was... We looked into this. We talked about this. There was, we think there's real sin here, right? Other peoples have seen it too. And there's, there's no change. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. And so we brought, we brought more people. We brought more people who, who need to plead with you. And if that doesn't work, Paul says, then we move on to a public rebuke. A public rebuke. Sorry, it's not physical. I don't know why I did that, right? But you know, public rebuke. And so he says, if they persist in sin rebuke them, call them out in the presence of all so that all the rest may stand in fear. You see, it's not right to take a private sin public unless all these other steps have been exhausted first. But there is a time where it may become very, um, very much appropriate to bring it public before the congregation. And when he says stand in fear, that's not meant to be like a mean motivator, right? Paul's not trying to be mean here. He's not trying to, to say like, hey, you know, like do it. Like let him have it in front of the congregation so everyone be scared of you, right? Like that's not Paul's heart here. It's more like a kid who says, hey, look, I saw. I saw how my big brother got in trouble when he did that one thing we're not supposed to. And I don't want to get in trouble too. I, I, I want to avoid how he got in trouble. You see, the goal is to restore. The goal is to, to correct. It's, the goal is not to punish. The goal is not to let him have it, right? It's like with, with our children, we discipline them not to let them have it, but to correct them in love, to, to form their character in the shape of the gospel. 
And look, not only, not only should we reject shallow accusations and investigate and address confirmed accusations, but we should also show impartiality in all our judgment. Impartiality in all our judgment. We see this in verse 21, when it says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, he's saying, hey, don't, don't prejudge. Don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. Don't sh- jump to conclusions of guilt uh, just out of selfishness, like, well, you know, I didn't really like that guy anyway. So these accusations kind of just came at a good time. Don't also jump to conclusions of innocence. Hey, this guy's been useful to us. People like him. He gets things done. He's got influence. So, hey, maybe we shove this under a rug, beat around the bush, and maybe people will forget about this. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that kind of thing happen to, to churches that I know. Look, this is so important that we carry this out appropriately, that we carry this out in a, in a spirit of, of humility and gentleness, a heart of restoration. What's at stake? Man, the witness of the church is at stake. That's why he says, in the presence of God and of Christ and of the elect angels, like you can feel the weight in those words. It's like he's saying, hey, look, I want you to understand the gravity of the importance of this. Here's why this process is important. Because you want to honor God's name. Especially you leaders, you want to honor God's name. You want to preserve the witness of the church. You want the world to know that we call what is good, good. We call what is evil, evil. We want to uphold the truth, which is what we, we saw in, in 1 Timothy 4. In 1 Timothy 4, about how the church are those who, who uphold the truth. We're the buttress of truth to protect God's people. Right? We, we, we just talked about that a minute ago, about how when you do this appropriately, um, the, rest of, the rest of the congregation might stand in fear. It protects God's people by protecting their holiness. And it also protects people who get, who get falsely accused. The process allows light to shine on the situation so that the corrupt, no matter what side of the equation they're on, with the appropriate time and process, the corrupt will eventually get exposed and the good gets protected. And the goal in the end is for the restoration of the sinner to abhor sin, abhor evil, and hold fast to what is good, as Romans 12 says. Listen, just as a quick aside, there should be nobody that fights for the pastor's holiness and for an elder's holiness than the pastor or elder himself. God forsake if, if we ever have to go through this process with one of our leaders or pastors. Forbid that day. No one should fight for the pastor's holiness more than the pastor himself. On this, I'll just quickly leave a, a quote from Paul Tripp. 
he says, he's a biblical counselor, he's counseled lots of pastors, and, and he says, as a pastor, you'd better be ready to fight for the gospel. But you'd better also be ready to war for your own soul. You'd better be committed to being honest about the battles that, you're go- that are going on in your own heart. You'd better be prepared to preach the gospel to yourself. You'd better arm yourself for the inner conflict that greets anyone in ministry. And so we honor the leaders who labor for us. We discipline those who lead us astray because of their sin. And lastly, number three, we select new leaders with caution and discernment. Select new leaders with caution and discernment. Verse 22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. There are few things more destructive than putting the wrong people in positions of leadership and influence in a church. 1 Timothy 6 gives an example of this. So it's just a few verses uh, that later uh, that we'll, we'll talk about in a couple weeks co- uh, coming up here. Uh, but I want to read this to you really quick here. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He talks about, he talks about those uh, who might presume to be leaders uh, but maybe have been installed uh, too soonly or, or too quickly. Soonly is not a word, right? Uh, too quickly uh, in leadership. He says they cause constant friction. Man, when you look at this, this, this passage in 1 Timothy 6 that we just read, you can almost hear the pain in Paul's voice. It's like he knows names. He knows people who meet this description. You just run through that list. He says these people, they crave controversy. They produce envy. They've got evil suspicions. They cause division. They cause friction with other people. That's not the kind of person that you want in leadership, is it? And so he says, don't be hasty. In other words, don't be too quick in the laying on of hands. When you lay hands on somebody to pray over them and install them, ordain them in their ministry. In other words, take your time when selecting or training and installing new elders. In our church planning process, uh, our, our network uh, set me up with uh, a couple other veteran church planters and pastors who've kind of coached me early on. And one of my coaches, actually more than one coach, said, have told me uh, early on, he says, you're never going to regret taking your time with raising up new leaders and elders, but you'll certainly regret moving too fast. Don't be hasty. Because when you're hasty, you don't have an opportunity to really get to know this person's doctrine, what they believe, how they teach on a number of different things, right? Right? Imagine someone installing someone into in, 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 the, in the leadership, um, finding out that they they don't believe in in the Trinity, right? Or they got some like whack eschatology view of the end times, uh, and you're like, man, that would have been nice to know, right? <laughs> like, but but before uh, we put you in this role, right? It takes time to to get to know if 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 somebody just has their pet projects that they've always wanted to see uh, in, in a church. 
And let me tell you, man, whenever you start a new church, uh, church planners will, will say this, but I've, I've seen this firsthand. When you, when you start a new church, like you'll often attract um, um, people uh, who have toxic personalities, who go from church to church to church, trying to get their thing started and they haven't been able to. And they're like, hey, there's a new church, right? Like, I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna tell them who I am. I'm gonna tell them what I've done. And like, maybe I can finally do my thing, right? Most of those people uh, have kind of moved, moved on from here. Actually, all of them. I don't want you thinking like, most of them, is, am I that? Am I one of those people, you know? Uh, um, no, I can, I can happily say, I think most of those people, or all of those people, sorry, uh, have moved on from here by this time. Um, but you can have people that are saying like, hey, you know, like I've, I've got a certain method I've always wanted to do. Like different, they've got different methods. Maybe they have a different vision for the church. It takes time to figure out if someone's truly a, por- a person of character, right? They might talk like a person of character, but you got to see if they walk like a person of character, right? Sometimes it helps to see them through four seasons of the year or multiple seasons of life, right? To see how they deal with character issues. How do they respond when someone gossips against them? Do they get angry and defensive, start flipping over tables, start giving people what's coming to them, or do they handle it with grace and dignity? Taking time and care in selecting elders and pastors is mission critical. Everything is mission critical in 1 Timothy. And it's important for all churches to heed these words. And selecting the right people is not always easy. You need caution and you need discernment. We read about both of these in verses 24 and 25. It says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So in that first verse, he's saying, look, some, some of these reservations that might pop up will be obvious. They'll show up right away. But in verse 25, he says, hey, sometimes things come up later. A person might look good and awesome at first. They might glitter like gold. But over time, it'll be proven that, that not all that, that glitters is gold. I hope that's a real saying, right? It like sounded right in my mind. Okay. Um, so it's like, not all that glitters is gold. And so like, let, let's see, right? Let's see. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's weigh this out. Let's weigh it up. Sometimes it is what it looks like. Sometimes it's, it looks like, hey, this looks like good works. And it is good works. Awesome. Person of character. Person who gets things done. A person who's respectable. Sometimes it takes time to see godliness of character. How do they handle suffering and conflict? How do they handle hard things? How do they handle hard responsibilities? And if we are practicing discernment, patience, engaging in prayer and fasting in this process, then, then their qualifications will be confirmed over time. The principle is to be, be quick to affirm what God might be doing, but be slow to, to lay on hands and put him on the field. In closing, I think we should end with the reason that this matters, especially in light of the gospel. What does all this leadership talk have to do with us in light of the gospel? The gospel tells us that Jesus died for us. 
He died for his church. And he calls pastors, elders, and leaders to lead his people, lead his church that he died for under his leadership. That's why it's honorable work. Jesus makes it honorable. His precious blood was spilled for this church. And so we lead under Jesus to build up the church of Jesus. The gospel also shows us that Jesus died to make his people pure, to set them apart. He paid for their sins so that they would no longer be identified with their sins. And so we pursue the purity of the church, and we pursue the purity and the health and the holiness and godliness of our leaders practically by dealing with sin and evil, no matter where it shows up, whether it's in the pew or from behind the pulpit. The gospel tells us that Jesus is also now on mission through his church. And we need the right people to lead that charge. We need the right people who are not out for themselves, who are not out looking for number one, uh, unless that number one is Jesus. They're not looking out for selfish gain, but they're looking out for the gain of the kingdom. Not for their own fame, but for the fame of Jesus' name. Not using the church to find their identity and glory for themselves, but who, because of the new identity they've been given in Christ, they give themselves for his glory, for the glory of God, and for the good of others. Jesus is worth it, and so we fight for holiness in our churches. He's worth it, and his church is worth it. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.